Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Drip, the podcast where four academics sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics, all the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes, or when we each are in our own homes, in our PJs, because we are still trying to keep ourselves, our loved ones, and even people we don't like safe and healthy. Please. We also want to <laughs> be free. Everybody. <laughs> we also want to send out our love, support, and gratitude to everyone who are still out on the streets demanding justice so we can all live and breathe more freely. And in Great. that vein, uh, rest in power, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Crystal. I'm Crystal Moten, and I um, am a museum professional who lives in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Thank you. Todd. I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach in the Department of English at the University of St. Thomas. Nice. Nice and short. Good job. I'm going uh, short Adi with <laughs> Adriana. I was a little shocked by that brevity. Um, so I'm Adriana Estel. I teach in English and American Studies at Carleton College. And like last word on John Lewis, let's make sure that we get this Voting Rights Act restored and expanded. Here, here. In his name. Yeah. I, I realize now why you were waiting for me to say more because I was supposed to say something about John Lewis. <laughs> you want to yeah no I, I just um no i think yes i will say something more i mean like what an extraordinary man what an extraordinary life um i just went you know earlier and was kind of like looking back at his biography and right from the very beginning it's just like extraordinary things like he i think he met martin luther king when he was 18 or 19 but he had done things even before that and you know martin luther king called him the boy from troy you know the young man <laughs> that was what he was referred to when he walked in first walked into the room but as both a activist and then as a politician always doing what is right and I think if anybody will, will remember anything about John Lewis is that he had integrity and he always fought for what was right and nobody can say anything to really besmirch his memory whatsoever because he always did the right thing so that's all I want to say about him thank you yeah thank you all right, so in this episode, we're gonna discuss The Guild of Stories by Jill Gomez. Gomez is a Cape Verdean, Iowa Wampanoag writer and activist, an activist. She is the recipient of a literature fellowship from the National Endowment of the Arts, two California Arts Council fellowships, and an individual artist commission from the San Francisco Arts Commission. And exciting news, uh, director Cheryl Dunier has purchased the rights to the Guild of Stories and is planning a multi-part series for television. What? What? Yes. Yes. Tell me that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm telling That's you That's not part of our pre-show <laughs> Sorry. information That's right. media. <laughs> we wanted this to surprise from my job. Exactly. <laughs> when is this yeah. happening? What's, when um, is this? So for um, <laughs> updates, you should look up the director's website. They're going to keep us updated on there. So yes. So it hasn't started shooting yet. I don't think so, and I'm assuming the pandemic is going to... I read that it was supposed to be in production starting in 2020, but, you know, yeah. 2020 is 2020, so... <laughs> 2020 is really making me angry. Yeah, I know. So it'll be out soon. I feel like we'll have a whole bunch of, like, cool TV series to watch because of, like, Binti and then this, and so yeah. we'll have a lot of good stuff to watch. Awesome. And Emerson um, actually just announced on Twitter that all of her books have been yeah. sold for either film or TV rights, which uh, means that the what? most recent book, The City We Became, has been That's optioned. Exciting. So hopefully we'll see that soon, too. That one's crazy, too. 
Um, so we will get to our book, but before we dig in, just a reminder that when we discuss our books or movies, we will talk about everything. So as you may know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. In other words, we're all about the spoilers and not about the summaries. Never. No summaries. <laughs> all right. So I want to start us off with a quote, kind of a long one, so bear with me, from Sadia Hartman. Um, this is from a recent interview she did. Because to me, it really spoke to one of the things that I think is like at the heart of what the Guild of Stories is about. And these are Hartman's words. She says, how does one bring a minor revolution into view? Most often, we want to maintain a fiction that desire exists on one hand and violence and coercion on the other, and that these are radically distinct and opposed. We might instead think of sexual violence as a normative condition, not the exception. Under heteropatriarchy, violence and rape are the terms of the order the norm, they're to be expected. So how does one lust after or relate to or want or love another? How does one claim the capacity to touch when touch is, in so many instances, the modality of violence? What does it mean for those persons whose bodies are most often subjected to the will, desire, and violence of others to imagine embodiment in a way that's not yoked to servitude or to violence? For me, this was essential to thinking about radical politics. What does it mean to love that body? to love the flesh in a world where it is not loved or regarded, to love black female flesh. Breonna Taylor's murderers have still not been charged. Incredible vulnerability to violence and to abuse is so definitive of the lives of black femmes. And so what does it mean to want to imagine and to experience something else? It can't but be political, simply to want to free one's body from its conscription to servitude, to no longer be made a servant in the reproductive project of the world, all of this is an abolitionist imaginary. And I read that like after I finished reading the book and I was like, yes, right? Like <laughs> this is what the Gilda stories it really is about, right? To like think about what does it mean to like imagine black femme um, sexuality and black femme choice, right? In a world where, and like black femme love, right? In a world where that's so often not just even like that it's ignored, but that it's actually like, criminalized or like as a site of violence. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of wanted to ask y'all about Can that. I ask a question first? Yeah. She said that or did she write that? Like she said um, that <laughs> So it's like a published <laughs> interview. Okay. Like online. Uh, so I don't know if she like wrote it or said well, it. Well, because Sydney uh, Hartman <laughs> is so smart and so articulate that yeah. she could have just said that, you know, to yeah. someone and I'm just like, whoa. Like yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't it's know. amazing that someone can get that out of their brain in such a like organized and articulate way. It's yeah, and the whole essay is great and we'll definitely can link to it. So um, yeah, but that was I'll, kind of I'll let, I'll, I just had to ask that question. I'll let you all uh, respond to it first if you'd like. Uh, I can start um, unless Crystal, you have something right on top of your head. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. <laughs> um, well, so one of the things I was thinking about a lot with this whole novel is, and I wouldn't have thought about it as an abolished imaginary. I didn't have that concept like right in front of me for it, but it's definitely about um, a variety of ways in which Gilda has been enslaved. And to some degree, even after she's made a vampire, um, still struggles with some of these moments, wh right? Where, um, you know, the past of the plantation and the past of her conscripted and enslaved body is still there, right? So it's actually like, I think there's a way in which the novel differentiates between Gilda once she's named, right? Named for 
the previous Gilda. She's the one character, in fact, who in some ways we, we see being kind of only as girl for a while. And then Gilda, like this name that's just passed on to her. And she like has to kind of figure out what do you do with this heritage, which is this heritage of slavery. Um, I lost a little bit of a thread there, but hopefully that gives y'all enough to, to riff on. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I love this book so much. And um, I, say, I know I say that all the time so much that it ceases to mean anything. I, I think <laughs> I love most of the books that I'm reading a lot while I'm reading them, but I really did love this book. And it's sort of like an underground classic, you know, the kind of book that not that many people have read, but people who've read it really are affected by it or impacted by it. Um, and I very much thought of this book as being a book about a character who has to, who creates herself anew, right? Like um, who becomes free and then becomes something else that has a kind of promise to it, but also, um, you know, things that are, need to be negotiated. Um, I mean, what does, I mean, one of the things I hope we talk about is sort of the, um, the pros and cons of, of living forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's something that, you know, vampires have to deal with. But I think in, in so many vampire or depictions or representations of vampire existence, it can be shown as, um, it, it's shown as something that's bad or something that corrupts uh, or something that is sort of embedded with evil, you know, or something that turns you into a predator. And here it's not. Um, and that's almost wholly due to the way that um, Jewel Gomez is able to imagine an exchange as like something as being an exchange and not a taking. Right. And that goes, you know, so this is a long way of getting back to um, your question that, you know, the reason why we live in a world in which sexual violence is so prevalent. One of the reasons is because it's thought of as something that you pleasure thought of as something you take from someone um, as opposed to an exchange um, of kindness or anything else, you know, um, that is sort of where two people are, or whoever is involved are on equal footing with each other. And that is, seems to be like a really central um, idea or concept in there, in the philosophy of this particular family of vampires. Um, and, it, and I think that's why it, um, why Gilda is drawn to it from the beginning. I mean, she sees these folks treating each other equitably, which is not something she's seen before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was um, the quote you began with by Sadia Hartman. There was just a lot in that quote. Um, but one of the the points that kind of I am thinking about, um, it kind of is the idea of kind of the violence that Black femmes have to contend with, um, you know, by virtue of who they are, but then also reconciling that point um, with Todd, a point you just mentioned about kind of the very nature of vampires and how Jewel Gomez is kind of turning or transforming that nature into something else. But I'm still kind of struck by the the fact that when this community of vampires, you know, go to seek their blood, they're still, um, they still have people who they are not getting consent from. And so that's type of violence. and although there is an exchange, because um, you know it, 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 the exchange and leaving some someone with something is really important, there still is the hunt that they have to involve themselves. Mm-hmm. In. 
Um, there is also the secrecy of the hunt. Um, and many times, although we see them <clears throat> engaging in the hunt individually, they sometimes do it in pairs. Um, there still is some, I think, I mean, I don't want to say negativity is the word, but there's some kind of something not positive about that. So even though they are kind of creating this community among themselves, their relationship to the people who they get blood from, I'm still, I still kind of question, um, mm -hmm. think yeah, about That's a great point. I, I really agree with all of that, um, Crystal. And I mean, I think there's no outside of violence in this novel, right? And I, I don't think Hartman would actually say that there's an outside of violence. So the question is within the structures of violence that we inevitably inhabit, <clears throat> like how do we find kinder ways? Well, that's how Gomez would come, come at it, right? What are the kinder ways in which we engage those structures? Um, and so like, you know, one of the things that really struck me is that, um, that Gilda is someone who really struggles with the moments where she has to kill someone um, or when she is being asked, you know, kind of commanded to, to kill someone. Um, and in all of the cases that, um, you know, that the novel presents to us, like, I, at least I felt like, you know, the first instance we see that is with these two white men in 1890. Was it? Well, the no. first time is when she kills the man who was going to, is the very first guy that she yeah, killed. Yeah, in 1850. Before oh, she's turned. That, that's fair. That's fair. Thank you. I was kind of leaving that out because it wasn't part of the vampire story, but you're right. You're, you're, and then the time you're talking about, it'd be 1921, I think. So yes. Was, but yeah. Yes. When she comes across the white men who um, presumably, like, they are super violent. They're talking about um, attacking her. And um, it's clear they've already lynched someone, right? At least I feel like that was implicit in the text. Um, and then the, the last time, why did I just space out the last time? Oh, was the, the fellow vampire. So we have this like interesting yeah. kind of like different 55. constellations of types yeah. of violence, mm -hmm. but all of them actually are about men mm -hmm. who interrupt and invade yep. women's spaces and kinder ways of negotiating the world in their bodies. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I was kind of thinking about that, like even with Crystal's point, right? Like where, um, like if it's about survival, right? And if it's about, uh, right? Like she, they need the blood to survive, but also in the cases where she kills the men, it was about survival, right? So like the first man she kills was gonna like presumably take her back into um, slavery and the, the other the two guys and then the vampire they kill who's like victimizing other women mm -hmm. um does that i don't know does that like shift how we think about the consent or non-consent or does it i mean it's it's still disturbing and like i get that like do we think that it's different because it's about like survival survival and and justice as opposed so, to I mean, like I... yeah survival and justice as opposed to like violence to yeah. dominate and to like have power over yeah uh, yeah i think so so i mean if we um, I, I mean, I think that's the first scene in 1850 is like really, really an amazing scene um, in the in its violence and its um, trauma and its but it's it's um, inversion of of the power. You know, like I just love how she's got this knife and the knife it, she has. She's sort of almost in this dream state, right? When mm -hmm. this this attack happens. And the knife is her mother's hand, but then it is a knife. And then the man is about to, you know, um, essentially yeah. about to penetrate her. Yeah. And she, pen and the language is actually, she penetrates him. 
mm-hmm. um, this mm-hmm. complete reversal or inversion of what we is it sort of common trope of sexual violence, but it's reversed, mm-hmm. and it's her way of freeing her own body and and um, avoiding this. I mean, actually, not avoiding it because the violence has already been done um, right. partially, yeah. right? Um, but I just think like that that there's no way. Well, maybe there is, and I'm just not smart enough to see it. But I'm going to be a person who's going to say. There's no way I can indict anyone who is protecting their own body um, in a world that is constantly looking to exploit it and to and to um, harm it or to possess it, right? And so all of those instances where she uses violence, except for as as you pointed out, Crystal, like when she's hunting, um, all of the instance, other instances when she's protect when she uses violence are about protection um, or protecting someone else. Right. So like when they kill Fox in in um, Boston, she's trying to protect the other woman whose name I totally forget right now. Uh, um, Toya. Yeah, Toya. They're trying to protect Toya. Right. So um, and they realize like Fox will never stop. Then she realizes that he's he's a vampire, too. So he obviously won't stop until right. they kill him. That's the only way to save this woman. Right. So, yeah, yeah. there's yeah, I don't I don't have but, any problem. I, but I think Crystal was talking is, about. Oh, go ahead. I, I mean, yeah, I was going to go back the same place, Anita, that I think this isn't the same as like thinking about the consent issues in the taking of the blood um, that the vampires oh, yeah. do, even yeah, in their separate. kind of like, you know, um, generous appearance, right, where their goal is like to take some of the blood, but then to leave them with this kind of good feeling or to reshape their dreams, right? Like they actually, one thing that's like fascinating to me about this novel, and I'm so glad you suggested it, Todd, for this is, and you, you told us this, you were like, it's a little slow at first. But then, then it, you know, like you get into it. And mm-hmm. it's true, it's slow in part because what the novel is mostly about is of course, it's not an adventure novel. This is not like a high stakes action novel. It is a deeply philosophical novel. It's it, like, it, it's like throughout the whole thing, thinking about consent, even though it doesn't always talk about it as mm-hmm. clearly or um, uh, directly on every page. But it's thinking about like, if we're living in community, aren't we always taking? And then if we're always taking, shouldn't we always in some ways be giving? And what's, what's taboo about taking blood from people as opposed to taking money or as opposed to taking time or as opposed to taking, you know, uh, love? Like, so what is the real difference between these things that are exchanged? Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually going to say like my point about survival was actually about the taking of the blood and not so much the killing, like definitely the killing, Mm -hmm. I feel like is like a more obvious like survival thing, but so is the taking of the blood, right? Like they can't survive. They can't live. They'll die right without blood. So it's like where, so I think that's like a really interesting point, Adriana, to think about what else do we take all the time from other people and don't think about an exchange or like, right. And sort of, um, Yeah. Um, and I do think like consent comes up a lot when they're like um, bringing in people into the life, right? Because like, I think that actually is like really interesting because there's like actually like a whole negotiation and there's like- And right, there's a whole lot of sexy, let me yes. just say. <laughs> <laughs> there were some sections that I was like, I am feeling very hot right now. <laughs> and a whole lot of sexy that like queers, like these interesting relationships, right? Because it's like both like a parent-esque um, relationship, but also like- there are some of sometimes right there's like also Mm -hmm. sex involved and I think like it's interesting like especially when I was thinking about um her relationship to Julius was like really interesting to me right because I think it's like you know I thought of her like or like I would have identified her as like a lesbian but like I think with him like she had this like really interesting Mm -hmm. like notions of desire that I feel like both um 
like exceeded in some ways, right? Like kind of this normative notions, even of like lesbianism. Um, so I think it was like a really interesting relationship. And also there's like these relationships that I thought of as like sexual, but I think, you know, with like, um, who is the one that she goes to Hampton? With Effie, right? Because I feel like yeah. it starts out that way, but I feel like maybe when they're in Ham- like, um, Hampton, they were just like, Right, we don't get to see it fully. Uh, right, so they were just like, hey, oh no, she wasn't there, or whatever it was, right? So it's like starts out in a sexual way, but also just like it's about friendship and is about, um, or like her relationship to Bird, which who um, is like one of her parents, right? But I think there are moments maybe when they're also lovers. So speaking of bringing people into the family, which is yeah. the way that they talk about, yeah. you know, making someone a vampire, like Gilda doesn't want to do it for, um, for nigh on a century, I believe it is. It's many decades where yeah. she's just like, this is a hard choice and I don't know how to make this choice and I don't want to make a bad choice. Yeah. Like I said, a super like philosophical novel about like the stakes of these, yeah. oops, was that a vampire pun? Bad. <laughs> not in this one is there like no no, 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 no stakes stakes in this one. general vampire fun. um yeah because it's know, it 19, 1981 right so it takes her such a long time until yeah. she well julia so that's yeah. is that 1981 mm-hmm. or 1970 yeah. 81 uh, 80. No. oh no no you're right 71 sorry 70. thank you but so like it's a long yeah. time right mm-hmm. so then you know like she gets to the land of enchantment and like, you know, running from hunters and goes up into this high rise. And there's this woman who's like basically tried to kill herself. And she's like, eh, you can become a vampire too. Let's go. <laughs> like what just happened here? Well, but she's trying to save her. She first, still right? does give her like her a choice, choice, right? Because she says um, 245. Oh yeah, no, I agree. But, but, like, but she doesn't, doesn't go through the yeah. whole ethical, like you know, like confusion. So I'm curious about what you guys think. What's changed in those years between 1970 and 2050? What has she learned about like herself or about vampires that makes it possible for her to make that decision so quickly? Well, I mean, so first, I think like vampire time is a little. <laughs> different than human people time. Todd, remember that my neologism that I want to use in this podcast is vamp time. Vamp time calling it vamp time. Vamp time <laughs> is different than human time. So I think the development of sort of like understanding what the life is like and all that kind of stuff, it takes a long time. And, um, you know, so we have these, we have this example of a vampire gone wrong, which is Eleanor, right? And, yeah. um, Samuel. And essentially, yeah. And so her, you know, Anthony, who's one of the two sort of main, along with Sorrel, one of the two main vampire leaders of the family. He's the one that she the talks patriarchs, to. patriarchs, which is interesting. I guess, yeah. It's so interesting considering yeah. like all of the basically lesbian vampires we mean. Yeah. 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 It would be. Yeah. Anyway, so we can talk about that. <laughs> but anyway, she, he seems to be the one she talks to the yeah. most as she's sort of figuring things out. And he kind of describes it as a parenting issue right like we didn't we shouldn't have turned her um oh, with Eleanor. or sort yeah sword yeah. shouldn't have turned her she he didn't teach her properly you know that sort of thing and in that case it's sort of reminiscent of like um you know oh my god I, i'm totally losing um frankenstein victor frankenstein and the monster oh. right which is a problem of parenting right you can't create uh-huh. life and then leave it to fend for itself because it becomes monstrous. And <gasps> Wait, can I just pause you for a second and just Absolutely. insert the parallel? Because of course, there's so much conversation in the novel between Gilda and Sorrel and Anthony, but also Gilda and other people about how um, Gilda, her mother, 
um, I mean, just decided to die after creating her and Bird took on the mothering, mm -hmm. right? And this whole question of like, did Bird do a good enough job mothering? Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I think, I think, and that, this goes back to some, something that Nita was saying before about that kind of strange and uncomfortable overlap between desire and also parenting. Like when you create a new vampire, is that person your lover? and also your child at the same time and all the sort of weird things that get mixed together. But I think she's trying to think about what does it mean to create a new vampire to, or to bring someone into the life? Um, how do you explain what it would be? Because I think like there's this thing about you can't, anyone, any mortal person who chooses it can't really understand what they're choosing. And yeah. so cannot to go back to kind of consent. I mean, they can consent to be changed, but they can't really consent to what the change really is. Yes. There's no way they can understand it. And so how do you deal with that? How do you communicate that to the person? How do you make sure that this is the right kind of person who is yeah. going to not turn into a monster? And then once you do that, are you ready to take on the responsibility mm -hmm. that comes with it? And I think, I think you're right, Adriana, like there is some question about whether the original Gilda, who was very thoughtful and careful, but also wanted the true death, like wanted to be mm -hmm. rid of all the war and violence and everything. Did she kind of shirk part of her duty by creating uh, Gilda and then leaving her to Bird? Mm -hmm. And Bird doesn't really want to be a parent, right? Bird right. wants to be all around the world doing all these things. And so there's this long period of time when Gilda, Gilda point 2.0, feels <laughs> like <laughs> she feels like she's sort of by herself and, and yeah. almost abandoned to yeah. a certain extent, you know? So I think she wants to avoid that happening yep. when she makes the choice. Yeah. Well, and because like, you know, she goes to Sorrel, like, so 1850 is like the first segment and then 1890s when she meets Eleanor, right? And like sees what could, how things could go wrong. So I also mm -hmm. wonder about like, she waits so long because I feel like, if she maybe hadn't met Eleanor and like had met other people who hadn't had such troubled histories yeah. of being turned, um, maybe would have like, maybe she would have turned somebody earlier. Yeah. Well, and then she sees too that mistakes in turning people are eternal mistakes. Right. Like, you, right. They, they just keep dogging you. They just, they, they don't ever go away <laughs> until suddenly you yeah. kill them or they kill themselves or whatever, you know? So yeah. it's a big decision, right? That's a lot question. of responsibility. Yeah. I have a question. Um, so whatever happens to, um, what's his name? The husband, Eleanor's husband. Uh, to, uh, to, she, does, she doesn't have a Samuel, husband. Samuel, Samuel. That's not her husband though. Yeah, it's not her oh, husband. Sorry, it's but not they had husband. an affair. Sorry. They right. had an affair. But, but um, Samuel, I feel like we get at the end he, of... He comes back. Yeah, yeah. in 81? Right. In or 1981. Even later. When? Wait, Chris was saying something. I was going to say, I think he, so he comes, he comes back and I think the implication that I read into the story is that Sorrow has to to deal with him. Oh. The, uh, the implication of him turning Eleanor when he shouldn't have. And so it's a battle between him and Sorrow that I don't know if we actually read the resolution. Yeah, right. I don't think so. I think that's okay. right. Because she, when she, uh, Gilda is out hunting and right. she accidentally almost kills someone. Yeah. And then she's like, what happened? And then um, yeah. then she realizes that it was actually Samuels Samuels in town. following her and like right. messing with her. Right, right. And that's that's like what? Is in that... the 1981 section. Yeah. Right. Say, but you're right. They don't late. resolve it. Because um, it says on 217, Gilda, uh, and she's talking to Anthony. 
And she says, and Samuel, what of him? That's a matter for him and Sorrel to sort through. Its outcome has already been, has been settled already, at least existentially. It only remains for Sorrel to return and put it in motion. And I love that language, right? Like, it's been settled existentially. (laughs) And I'm like, but can we actually see it happen? No, because the novel is not interested in that. Um, Those wheels have been turned. (laughs) The other quote I was thinking about, and I think this is related to, like, your earlier question, Adriana, about, like, what does she learn? Um, Or, like, what has she learned that, like, lets her, allows her to, like, you know, turn um, Irma so quickly. But this is on 210. And again, this is, I think she's talking to Anthony because you're right. I think she's like, he's the like person that she has all these like conversations with. Um, And he says this to Gilda and he says, you've searched admirably for your humanity. Indeed, this is the key to the joy found in our lives, maintaining our link in the chain of living things. But we are no longer the same as they. We're no longer the same as we once were ourselves. You know this when you're with your friends. Don't ignore it. It's not wrong to look to them for their humanity, but your life is with us. We go through the ages with you and you cannot take them all with you. A a corner must be turned here or you will remain as unfulfilled as Samuel. Um, So I think one of the other like quotes I was thinking about and I think, you know, that I mentioned is kind of this notion of like part of what we think about like what makes us human is that fact that we will die, right? And like Mm -hmm. um, Ocean Wong, who was like talking to Chris Tippett on the show, like, and this is what he says. And he talks about how he does this. I think he actually goes to like a cemetery and does... Um, a Zen death meditation, and these are his words. And it sounds very morbid, but the practice is actually supposed to bring yourself into the inevitable. The conditions of our lives will be vanquished through death. So then all the pettiness, the little angers that you have with those you love, with those you don't love, and your neighbor, little things falls away. It's so small when the ultimate lasting reality is death. All religions have this, outside of the orthodoxy and the rigors of ceremony, at the center of it is trying to remind us that we will die. And how do we live a life worthwhile of our um, breath and thinking about death and thinking about what we do around us helps me center myself into such a chaotic space. So those were his words, but I was like, so what does it mean then for like, you know, people, I feel like they had some name. Is it just like people in the blood or there's like some other term that they use uh, other than like they said that in the blood or something in the blood. Um, Anyway. So for like, you know, especially maybe Gilda and I was thinking about bird also as an indigenous woman, like what does it mean to like not necessarily have that? like looming necessarily right but like you actually have to not have lifetimes to like work things through right like a lifetime to like develop and to think about or maybe i'm thinking about it wrong because maybe yeah, I, no, time no but. no but i i so I, I don't know like i might not be going back enough to the ocean of wong quote so you'll that's forgive fine. me if i don't but like one of the things that's really fascinating uh, about like the gilda bird dyad is like how differently they use their immortality Right. So Bird, we know she's a traveler. And then we start getting hints that actually in her travels that what she's doing is actually like land recovery efforts. Like she's Mm -hmm. she's like engaged in this kind of global indigenous movement, Mm -hmm. which I think is such a like a powerful statement for thinking about like what would you do with an eternal life if you are an indigenous person who has roots in the United States, like in the early colonial period. And then like in counter to that, Gilda, there's a way in which she's like, she has that moment, right? Where she says like, everyone's traveling across the ocean, but I don't know, I can't do it. Middle passage, I feel Mm -hmm. like there's stuff there. And you know, that's a path I cannot take. 
So her path is this really different one, but um, on page 157, this is in the 1955 section when Bird has finally returned and they're trying to protect Toya. And Bird's basically asking her, like, what have you been up to the last 80 years? Um, Bird continued, is this why you've taken no one into this life? Is the mortal world too sacred? So there's a way in which Gilda, um, in contrast to, you know, all the other vampires that we meet, is still pretty attached to kind of seeing mortality as something that imbues a particular power, sacredness, um, and that, you know, she hasn't quite made peace until very late in the novel with like mm. what it means to have a different temporality, I think. Yeah. And I was going to um, say in connection to the Ocean Wong, is that quote um that there's the from that quote you know there's this sense that you know life is finite so you should kind of you know not focus on those small insignificant things but i think on the flip side of that and thinking about immortality um is do you want kind of you know these huge issues to loom across immortality and Mm -hmm. so there's this sense that especially when i think Mm -hmm. of bird and um gilda's relationship that the fact that that's unsettled kind of keeps bird kind of trapped in her development and unless they settle that then this immortality is just gonna kind of keep looming over gilda's life and she's gonna be kind of stuck in this moment until they settle whatever whatever else they settle so in the one sense you know um i think not an awareness of mortality kind of causes you to act in a way to value the little time you, the little time mm-hmm. you have. But um, the the immortality piece also, what's resonating with me is that, you know, carrying the conflict through Im- through immortality, mm-hmm. not, um, that's not desire either. That's um, what Samuel uh, does uh-huh. too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Samuel won't stop forever. In- right, right. Yeah. Okay. So you don't yeah. want to like carry the pettiness, even if you're not going to die, like basically like, you <laughs> yeah. know, right. Well, or especially maybe, if you're not going to die, maybe. I, right. I, I'm right. interested in thinking about that, you know, further, you know, what Ocean Vuong said, because um, did you say that uh, um, he was doing what kind of meditation? He was called it? it like a Zen uh, death a Zen. meditation. And right. And there's like this whole thing about how it's like in, um, I don't know if it's like in Zen Buddhist tradition specifically, but it's like, there's always like a focus on like, the body like you don't turn away from like the dying body you don't turn away from the like like what happens to people's bodies when they die so in like the novel he has this whole like thing about like his mom and his aunt and him or like there with his like grandma is like she's dying of death and there's like this like really material description of like what a body decaying like mm-hmm. smells like and looks like and all of these things and he says that that's like um at least in that tradition like you don't just turn away from that right like, like you sort of accept the reality of like what it means I, and i think it's I, I think it's like impossible to turn away from it if you are confronted with it but like the yeah. world we live in we almost don't have to be confronted with the material reality of death well, Look Someone at the can fact die. That we're just up like, to like how many yeah. coronavirus deaths, right? right? Yeah. 140,000. Yeah. And it's, um, it, we, there's no kind of like material way in which we're yeah. actually facing that as a country. Yeah. Right. Well, you're not seeing, I mean, the closest we come to it is uh, these refrigerator trucks, right? right. Mm-hmm. That are holding the bodies, but there's a huge, huge effort being made. So no one ever has to see a body being brought right. out right. of the hospital and into one of these trucks and then to the morgue or wherever. Yeah. 
they hide the 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 bodies themselves have to be hidden away, right? You know, yeah. And that's a, um, but and I don't even know if that that um, changes what I was going to say before before we got to that point. But I was going to say that I think that so many people in their minds do not think of themselves as mortal because of the way that they believe. They actually mm-hmm. think of themselves as having some other life after they die. Mm-hmm. Does that? change the way that they think about this life in particular ways i mean i think that's what's different about maybe that zen buddhist way of of you know sort of inhabiting the possibility of death is to focus on the body and the life again i don't know that much about buddhism or zen buddhism but i i'm willing to bet it's different than let's say uh, you know, evangelical, you know, Christian. But, but there was like an afterlife. Yeah. Your point is really interesting too, because this is a novel that is really uninterested in institutionalized religion. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like maybe in the last part with um, what's her name? Ermis. Mm-hmm. Ermis. Yeah. Um, we finally get, um, you know, this kind of knowledge of um, kind of gospel hymns, right? Like mm-hmm. we get the songs, but we don't get at any point, right? We don't get church going. Well, and it's fascinating because one thing the novel is super interested in is Gilda at one point late in the novel, she talks about how, and I'm going to not put it like she did, but she talks about how important it was to be a black vampire, right? That like, she actually, like there was a way in which she moved through this history um, that was unique and that did have to be concerned about building these communities wherever she was. Um, And yet, yet there's no black church, which is a really um, interesting gap. There's the, there's the black performance space though. I mean, I think that's what's the most, so you get like the theater, Mm-hmm. You get the the bar where mm-hmm. she's singing. I mean, these are, and, you know, in, in Black culture, I mean, these have not been entirely separated from each other, right? Like mm-hmm. you go to the juke on Saturday night and you go to church on Sunday morning and you the same people that were singing <laughs> the juke are in the choir on Sunday morning, you know, like, so they're this, the, the sacred and the profane um, are very close, mingle very closely with each other. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, showing those spaces as being, kind of like religious spaces makes perfect sense, I think. And is it also because like in vampire lore, churches are like harmful uh, to vampires? Isn't there like a whole, I mean, this is not in the book, but. Yeah. Um, in this novel, all that we see that's harmful to them is water, right? Yeah, yeah water. Um, but they can kind of mitigate that by having their native earth somewhere yes. in their body, right? Like talk about that. going into their clothes. Yeah. Um, kind of also, sunlight, but they can do it with sunlight too, right? If they right, have with the earth, yeah. Oh, and I love it. We well, I mean, and I how does it. um, what's his name get killed? Fox? Do they like burn? Well, they they, they leave take him, him in the boat and they take yeah. his clothes off so he's not protected by his right. um, could the soil. Okay, mm-hmm. and then they burn his heart after that. <laughs> yeah, that was it was love brutal. It. Like I wrote down in the in the margins, brutal, yeah. <laughs> brutal death. Oh my god, it's amazing. I but, love. I just wanted oh. to add, add to this, but I love the fact that you can be protected if you take your native. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. Yes. Like, what is that? I mean, it's so interesting to me. And it's like, especially given that, right? I mean, it's like, what does native mean? Like, it's just like the soil of your birth, Birth, right? So like, especially for like displaced people, and especially for folks who are enslaved and like stolen from their lands, the fact that it can be grounded in the US, like, I think it's like interesting. I was worried about Julius, because I didn't remember where he was born. And I thought (laughs) they were going to try and have to like dig up this New York soil. No, she like flies. Did she fly there? Did she get on an airplane? She got on an airplane. In one day, she's like, I'm going to Virginia and coming back. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I do think it's like interesting, right? Like, I mean, like for Bert, obviously it's like her original ancestor's place, but and like, but for um, obviously for any of the black folks, right? It's like, it's still their native soil in the sense that it's like where they were born. But I think it's like, yeah, what do we think about that? Just this, and like, they have to sleep in it, right? Like at night, yeah. they mm-hmm. sleep in like those, yeah, um, in the pallets, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it is a part of the more traditional um, vampire mythology. Oh, oh yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, because like in in um, in Dracula. In Dracula, oh, yeah, okay. he takes his uh, native soil with him. But oh. um, but I like it, you know, because especially for I, I think especially for an African American character too. Like you were saying, you know, that sort of displacement, but we have this really complicated relationship with um, the United States and we yeah. think about places in the United States as being our home. And yet for so many of us, it's difficult to like locate those places, you know, like mm-hmm. my family is from Tennessee or, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, like they, tra- my mom traced our you know lineage back to North Carolina and then it disappears. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't trace it any further. So mm-hmm. Um, you, in some ways you, you choose where your native land is mm. and you say, this is, this is my home. And so I'll take this with me. Mm. And that is something that many, many black people have to do because they can't trace their, their, you know, lineage back to some specific place in Africa or something like right. that. So anyway, that was interesting to me. Um, and I wonder if that was related to, like, I don't know what you, what do we think, like, why is she called just the girl before she gets um, made into Gilda? Is that supposed to be, like, some sort of notion of, like, she could have been anybody? Like, she could have been any young Black girl trying to, like, escape slavery? And, like, is that, was that how we, or, like, I mean, she obviously would have had a name, right? Even, like, so I was, like, curious about why we don't get that name. That's a good question. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't have good answers with it. I, I find it, like, you know, as a literary device... I think there's definitely a kind of like issue of like when she becomes a vampire, that's her baptism into a new life and she gets mm. this name. Okay. But it, I, it's still like, I still think it's very much kind of like this parallel with, with enslaved life, mm-hmm. right? Where, yeah. you, know, um, you know, she has to take the name of her mistress mm-hmm. in this right. case, who we, is coded as white in the beginning. So there's like a really interesting racial dynamic too. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's still a kind, you know, kind of compassionate kind of mastery. Um, but there's, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's unclear like how old she is when she consents to become a vampire and like what other choices does she have? Her choices mm-hmm. are kind of like restricted. Um, you know, it's still she- like a, clearly a really good life eventually for her, but... Um, mm-hmm. I think she's like um, a lot of um, fugitive slaves who had to remake themselves, remake their, like yeah. create new identities yeah. and remake themselves. So, I mean, I think, you know, to call her the girl, I think you're right. You know, on one hand, it does sort of create a character that's just sort of a not anonymous, any person who's escaped from slavery. But also I think it reflects the fact that when you escape from slavery, you have nothing and you have to recreate it, right? You know, you have to, you have to create an identity. So how many slaves that we know about renamed themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and and rejected those names that they had before, because that wasn't their, that wasn't their identity that they understood, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. That was the, um, that was a part in the, 
in the novel that I've really struggled with the mm. fact that um you know the girl gets renamed Gilda and knowing mm. that Gilda was a was a white woman I just really struggled with that as kind of a a framing or like the opening of the book um mm -hmm. especially in a book that you know has so much to say about um you know black black femmes kind of freedom and liberation and movement and definition but like kind of the vi the very first act of defining mm -hmm. number one made by someone else mm -hmm. and also um creating an image or after an image that is difficult. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question of is, is uh, Gilda 1.0, is she for sure white? I wasn't sure. I was going to ask that actually. I mean, I know she looks white and I know yeah. the girl says she's right. white, mm -hmm. but then she also early, she, she, they go, I think her and Bird go to the store mm -hmm. and they see these women who are, won't talk to them. Right. And she realizes that they are, mixed race women who um, see themselves as separate from because it's new it's they're in new oh, orleans no, but right they, but yeah. they run they run a um how do i say it genteely yeah. yeah brothel a brothel yeah thank you i was looking for exactly that word they That's run a brothel <laughs> so for me like the coding of like, like a class thing or right like how much of gilda and birds kind of exclusion is about their relationship which is clearly right. close how right. much of it is about like the business that they run and, and people know what they're doing um, well, and that I, kind of continues throughout the novel right where there's a, a way in which sexual the taboo of sexuality right, right. and the kind of like the embodied black body like it's unclear unclear in some places like what exactly is getting um pushback well, there are moments I, when sorry Todd, I, I, I only brought it up just because of she has a realization that oh people who look white can also be black that's the right. only reason and, i brought it oh uh, yes. And they're in Louisiana, and I was—I right. mean, I was thinking, um, thinking about that. I think the the thing that kind of made me lean toward believing that Gilda 1.0 was a white woman was that that was because I was reading um, that scene you described, Todd, about kind of the reaction of Gilda and Bird in public to a white woman being with an indigenous woman or a woman of color, oh. and what that. Look, that's how I read that. Um, but yeah, so I thought, so, it was so like, it was, I thought it was girl and bird who got um looks from this. So this is like 27, 28. Yeah, and that's what we're talking about. Okay, okay. So it wasn't Gilda 1.0 who was getting okay. the looks. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's Gilda 2.0. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I introduced that nomenclature. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, he says that, uh, so Bird and the girl were self-consciously erect as they meandered from one shop, to the, one shop to the next, making their way easily among the creamy colored quadrants who with mighty effort pretended they did not see them. It was some time before the girl understood that these graceful cold women shared her African blood. So maybe that's where like we could maybe think about maybe the original Gilda is also perhaps. That's what, that's what I, that's the only yeah. thing I was thinking of. I don't have any other. But, like, but I think then she would like have kind of rescripted Gilda for us, Gilda 1.0, mm -hmm. which she, which she doesn't. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean. I think yeah. I read her as white with like some potential, like maybe he wasn't. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was thinking about Crystal's point that, but also like the point that I brought up earlier about like, I think it's interesting that it's like Sorrel who's like created this family. So there's still this like 
mm-hmm. man who's like kind of the head of the family, literally. Did Sorrel create Gilda? So, I mean, the thing about Gilda 1.0, for like all that we like that we know about her, which is that she created Gilda 2.0 and Bird, <laughs> that's really all we know about her. We actually okay. don't know where her earth is from, right? Where her native soil is from. Okay. We don't know who created her. Um, we know who she found in family, but we're also seeing in the way that Gilda 2 builds her family that like Anthony and Sorrel are still like, hey, you're, you're, you're of us, right? Like we yeah. are. And so I thought a lot about chosen family, right? In that kind of mm-hmm. um, queer, queering kinship kind of way. Um, that even though some of these choices are about exchanging blood, some of these choices are about like, what kind of vampire do we want to be in the world? And we mm-hmm. see each other and we know we can count on each other. And they talk about other vampires who've chosen to be a different way in the world. Exactly. And of course, right. like Fox is an example of that. Right. Right, right. Um, and not like do they exchange and just be right. kind of predatory. So yeah, I mean, I guess there's this this part. Um, so we talked uh, before about how you know the vampire is uh, once they become a vampire, they're no longer they're no longer human, and they have to accept that that that's part of the of the process. I, I think what do you do when you re when you have to, when you accept or realize that you have power over these other um, beings? How do you treat them? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's what makes the other vampires, you know, objectionable is that they have this power over people and they they use they exploit it or they use it in the wrong way to take advantage or whatever. Right. And that's always what we see in sort of traditional vampire right. narratives and in, in, in is that the vampire essentially takes whatever they want from people. They exploit their immortality, they exploit right. their, you know, powers, et cetera, et cetera. And there, in this case, it's about, okay, I could do this, but is that right? I could do this, but what would that mean? Like, it's always about sort of keeping kind of some kind of control over the ability that you have of things that you could do um, and pulling back, you know? On page 78, you know, Gilda has one of these initial conversations with Sorrel because of Eleanor. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she's like, I don't understand this. Why is Eleanor terrible? Um, and he says, it won't, it, none of this will make sense until you let yourself understand our world better. We have life, but business does not mean we are better people. Mm-hmm. In fact, we must struggle even more than mortals to do to remain good. How easy it is for goodness to have no meaning when punishment, retribution, or hell have no meaning. Yeah, that was what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Except that Joel Gomez said it better. Yeah, well, <laughs> she's a author who wrote a book about it. That's a good place to end because okay. it is an amazing book. Um, yes, yeah, so please read it and we... I feel like we'll have to do like a whole series of podcasts about all the cool like TV adaptations of the books we're reading. So Seriously. look forward to that. I can't wait for that. Woo. <laughs> um, all right. We're going to do a round of uh, something that we want to talk about that we're reading, watching, listening, eating, whatever. Um, Adriana, want to start us off? Sure. Um, so I was reading this novel like <laughs> all my reading time, um, but I did start rewatching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is one of my favorite shows. And it's been interesting actually to kind of look at those vampires and think of how they're so different than this beautiful world that Jewel Gomez writes for us. And the other thing I've been doing in these pandemic distracted times, I've started doing crosswords. And I've learned something about myself. In the past, when I didn't want to do crosswords, it's because I would get frustrated. I'd be like, I don't know what this is. Like, I'm just quitting. And I still do the same thing now, but like, I'd be like, (laughs) okay. Like it is okay to give up. And on a nothing's password. changed. 
<laughs> I mean, but you know, like sometimes you finish and sometimes you give it up and it's like a book, right? Like I, if there's a book that I hate reading that I'm like, this is like not good. Can you reading it? So why am I doing that with crossword puzzles? So you, you haven't changed how you do it. You've just changed how you think about it. That's right. Excellent. Excellent. I love it. Reflections during yeah. pandemic times. <laughs> All right, Crystal. <laughs> I, um, oh, shoot. I just lost it. Okay. I am reading very slowly um, The Hemingses of Monticello, which is um, a book Ooh. about the uh, Sally Hemings family um, in oh. connection Thomas Jefferson, and it's by um, Annette Gordon-Reed. And so kind of in an effort to, um, you know, to tell us the broader story of the Hemings family, um, you know, as they were connected to and also separate from, in some way, Thomas Jefferson and his family. So, so it's, a hi- it's a history of the family? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. yep. Cool. Thank you. Todd? Uh, first of all, I want to say how happy I am that you guys seem to have enjoyed reading this book because I'm <laughs> entirely sure that that was going to happen. Um, I loved it. You were, you were I was, worried. Yeah, I was a little worried like you guys were going to be upset with me, but I'm so glad that you did. Um, I, first, before I get to the thing that I'm reading, I wanted to um, acknowledge, this is a little bit ago, but um, the author Barbara Neely died in March, and she is the author of one of my favorite, favorite books, Blanche on the Lamb, which I think I've mentioned on the pod before. If you haven't read Blanche on the Lamb, you should go out and pick it up. It recently came back into print in a new edition, and um, it is the, there's, a, there's four of them, and so it's a series of detective stories about a Black uh, domestic worker who solves uh, crimes, um, and the first one's really great because um, she's a, a, she gets convicted of um, a crime herself and she escapes from the police and um, goes and hides out at a farmhouse in the country and there she has to solve a crime um, in order to protect herself. So um, it's a really great series uh, and it's really sad to lose Barbara Neely who was a great author as well as an activist. So pick that up. And um, what I'm reading right now is I am reading Begin Again. Um, by uh uh what's the name oh eddie Gloud. i almost forgot his name yeah, yeah. Um, but the yeah the the princeton um mm-hmm. professor and public intellectual eddie Gloud, and like everyday msnbc reliable figure he's always on msnbc pretty much <laughs> um begin again uh, james baldwin's america and it's urgent lessons for our own i'm not finished with it but so far going off of what i've read so far i would highly 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 recommend it it's really great it speaks a lot about what's going on right now uh, in the United States with, uh, you know, racial issues and the pushback against uh, the movement and all that sort of stuff. And it's all through the prism of James Baldwin, who, you know, you guys know that I think is the person that everybody should read in this country if you really want to know what America is about. Totally agree. Uh, totally, totally pick that up. It's, uh, I think it's like number one on the New York Times bestseller oh, list wow. right now, oh, wow. which is pretty extraordinary. So, Cool. Thank you. Um, I have two recommendations. Neither of them are books. Uh, so <laughs> the first, and these are not new, just new to me. So the first one is the 2004 documentary Shirley Chisholm, 72 Unbought and Unbossed, which is about um, Chisholm's 1972 bid for the Democratic presidential nomination. Um, and it's really cool because uh, it also features an interview with Octavia Butler, which is like really uh, unexpected and cool. I will say that it might just lead you to have all kinds of feelings about our choices in this November, but whatever. Um, definitely check out the documentary. <laughs> I mean, just, yeah, 
anyway, we check don't it out. need any more of those feelings. I know, I know, but it's a great documentary, and I feel like Angela I knew... Davis has endorsed Biden, so we're so sure. we're okay now. We're good. So we're okay, yeah, no. uh, But yes, <laughs> so check out the documentary. Uh, so my second one is also again not new, but new to me is Jamila Woods' album Legacy Legacy that came out last year, so I guess newish. Um, and each of the tracks, each of the tracks are named after a black or brown artist, writer, intellectual. Um, and I just saw that she has like a bunch of videos for the songs on her website. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. But it's a great album. So definitely listen to it if you haven't. Um, okay, so next book, actually books. So the next book we're going to read is Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo, which we're kind of excited to read. It's another, uh, it's a book in Oh, no, it's a book in verse. Verse. Okay. The novel, <laughs> novel in verse, right? The novel in verse. Yes. <laughs> and it's great. I think you all will enjoy it. So that's our next book. Uh, but the episode after that, in honor of John Lewis, we're going to talk about his three-part graphic memoir, March. So definitely it's, um, it's three books. So it's going to take us a while to read it. So just get it now and read it. And you'll be ready to, ta- uh, to listen to us talk about it, I guess, um, in a couple of months. And so, yeah, so next up is Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo. And then after that, we'll be doing uh, March by John Lewis. So I think that's all. So as a reminder, you can find the podcast on all the places where you can find the podcast. And we hope that you're all staying safe and healthy. You know, wash those hands, wear those masks, and we are sending you all big virtual hugs. Please wear a mask. Please wear a mask. <laughs> Be safe. Wear a mask. When you're at my grocery store, <laughs> yeah. please wear a mask. <laughs> People yesterday I saw without a mask in my grocery store, please wear a mask. Please keep hot safe. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye, okay. y'all. Bye. See ya. Bye. You've been listening to another episode of The Drip recorded in St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Northfield, Minnesota, and in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The Drip is written, produced, and directed by the All Spoilers Collective, which is Anita, Adriana, Crystal, and me. Bastard Dog is our mascot, but Malcolm the Dog is making a strong case. Our music is by Lord Jordan X of Kansas City, Missouri. We'll be back in August to talk about Elizabeth Acevedo's novel and verse, Poet X. After that, we'll be doing all three volumes of John Lewis's graphic memoir, March. To all the ancestors we recently lost, thank you and rest in power. Until next time, be safe and take care of each other. Bye.